This is a recording of Alma's Prophetic Commissioning Type Scene by Alan Goff, published in Interpreter, a journal of Latter-day Saint faith and scholarship, read by Alan Goff. Abstract. The story often referred to as Alma's conversion narrative is too often interpreted as a simplistic plagiarism of Alma's conversion to Christianity story in the book of Acts. Both the New and Old Testaments appropriate an ancient narrative genre called the prophetic commissioning story. Paul's and Alma's commissioning narratives harken back to this literary genre, and to refer to either as pilfered is to misunderstand not just these individual narratives, but the larger approach Hebraic writers used in composing biblical and Book of Mormon narrative. To the modern mind, the similarity in stories triggers explanations involving plagiarism and theft from earlier stories and denies the historicity of the narratives. Ancient writers, especially of Hebraic narrative, had a quite different view of such concerns. To deny the historical nature of the stories because they appeal to particular narrative conventions is to impose a mistaken modern conceptual framework on the texts involved. A better and more complex grasp of Hebraic narrative is necessary as a necessary first step to understanding these two and many more Book of Mormon and biblical stories. Epigram. The idea of conversion is both a history, has both a history and a geography. As a BYU graduate student, I read, not for the first time, Fon Broda's catalog of narratives Joseph Smith purportedly plagiarized from the Bible. Quote, many stories he borrowed from the Bible the daughter of Jared, like Salome, danced before a king, and the decapitation followed. Aminati, like Daniel, deciphered handwriting on a wall, and Alma was converted after the exact fashion of St. Paul. The daughters of the Lamanites were abducted like the dancing daughters of Shiloh, and Ammon, the American counterpart of David for one of a Goliath, slew six sheep wrestlers with his sling. This frequently quoted passage from Brody's oft and still cited book initiated a mission. I decided to examine each of these five narratives, convinced that the list represented neither an adequate philosophy of history nor a suitable textual theory. In the more than 30 years since, I have addressed each narrative. This is the first of the five interrogations of Brody's examples to be published. The other four will be forthcoming. Sometimes the insight came serendipitously from stumbling across a book in the library, and sometimes I directly searched out biblical criticism sources to explain the textual connection. Brody isn't alone in concluding Smith plagiarized biblical narratives. Here is Wayne Ham's plagiarism of Fon Brody's passage. Quote, Other apparent biblical allusions in the Book of Mormon include Alma's conversion in a similar fashion to Paul's, Ammon like David, slain six sheep wrestlers with the sling, the daughter of Jared, like Salome, dancing for the king in return for a decapitation, Jesus' blessing of the children, and an abduction scene similar to that involving the daughters of Shiloh, end quote. If similarity indicates plagiarism, then Ham plagiarizes while accusing Joseph Smith of plagiarism. Ham doesn't cite Brody as a source for this passage. Adding one item, Brody omits, Jesus' Blessing of the Children. Similarly, a psychobiography of Joseph Smith claims the source of Alma's conversion narrative is Acts. Of Mosiah's sons and Alma, the writer asserts, quote, 
Their conversion story is patterned after that of Paul in Acts 9, 1-31. Such reductive readings are common. B.H. Roberts was already responding to similar claims in 1909 when one John Hyde, writing in 1857, stated that among other plagiarisms, Alma's conversion story imitates Paul, Paul's. More recently, certain Susan Curtis has also said that among other biblical narratives, Smith borrowed Alma's conversion from Paul's. Much has been published on issues concerning the difference between ancient historical narrative and modern historical writing, research entirely ignored by these writers who blithely and simplistically assert meaning without citing a single source. In this article, I take up what Brody, Ham, Curtis, and Vogel, among others, assert is Smith's theft of Paul's Damascus Road narrative. Conversion is a curious and unpredictable process, often thought a one-way street from atheism to theistic belief or trading one religious tradition for another. Conversion narratives need to be treated as a literary genre with different standards of judgment than one might find in modern historical treatments. One, by historians who assert they do scientific free of all literary influence. And two, by historical writers who don't recognize that narratives from antiquity can't merely be assimilated to the expectations of modernity without losing tremendous and vital aspects of what gives antique stories their character and quality. But in antiquity, as in modernity, quote, traffic went the other way as well. Jews became pagans like the assimilationists in Alexandria, who started out in the front seat of the synagogue, moved back to the last seat, and finally ended up singing in the pagan religious processions on the street outside, end quote. Conversion narratives have a complex cartography of starting and ending points. Front seat, back bench to the streets outside. How one figures conversion impacts how one tells stories about conversion. A hymn shouted from the street procession carries a different timbre from one sung in the front pew. The stories of Alma's, Paul's, and Augustine's conversions require historical and diegetic context, neither researched nor explored by the Brody School, as catechists to the religion of modernity, most of whom traveled the route from front pew to back pew to the parades in the streets. Heading, History of the Separation of History and Literature. Only in the past century and a half have moderns insisted that literature and history shouldn't substantially coincide. From antiquity to the 1850s, history and literature were overlapping genres. They both shared a common trunk, rhetoric, and figurative language and literary style were valued in both literary forms. In the modern period, when humanists and social scientists saw the power of natural science to predict and control, they aspired to similar effect, imitating sciences and influence, imitating the sciences and influenced by enlightenment rationality, historians severed the discipline's literary connections to pursue literary status. This scientific history fashion began in the early 1800s and lasted for well over a century. The apex occurred when uh, Leopold von Rank, 1795-1886, articulated a, a historical method the discipline adopted, one most historians still espouse, but whose theoretical foundation has been hollowed out, a methodology based on source criticism, empiricism, and archival research. Influenced by Rankian modernity, Leopold von Rank laid the foundation of modern history with its emphasis on source criticism, repeatable scientific method, 
and objectivity that is still the dominant conceptual framework of the historical profession today, even if what the profession learned from Rank wasn't exactly what he taught or wrote. Historians aspire to write in a plain style, to avoid metaphors because they distort the world as it really is, to get to the brute facts of the past, free of all embellishment and figuration, and to avoid adding imagination to the historical record. In the best non-modern definition of history, Johann Huizinga articulated this putative difference between literature and fiction. Quote, The sharp distinction between history and literature lies in the fact that the former is almost entirely lacking in the element of play that underlies literature from, the begin from beginning to end. End of quote. Although wrong when one considers the element of interpretive play available to the historian and the metaphorical templates historians inevitably impose on their, history, their histories, this definition has an element of adequacy because some imaginative play with sources and events is available to the novelist, but not the historian. Bound up too tightly with this historical view is the idea that the presence of any literary motif undermines the account's historicity because, presumably, history is a linear process rather than a repetitive series of events, and any recurrent motif must come from the later example plagiarizing the earlier. The literature-slash-history chasm is commonly assumed rather than argued. Tal Elan, an Israeli historian of women in the history of rabbinic Judaism, among the related topics, at least justifies why literary themes might undermine historicity in, in rabbinic stories involving women characters, applying standard historical judgment to these stories. The later a story is removed from the events described, the less likely it is to be, to be historically accurate. The closer geographically to the place of origin, the more likely it is to pass historicity standards. Elan doesn't naively believe in automatically di an automatic disqualification by literary motif, but its presence raises questions. Literary motifs are themes that appear in more than one source. Quote, within rabbinic literature, discovery of a recurring literary motif can undermine the historicity of a narrative. When a literary framework is carried over from one composition to another, and in the process, the anonymous characters of the motif acquire names and biographies of real people. This does not make the story more historically sound. Thus, one must be constantly on the lookout for the common literary motif when dealing with a source that claims to be telling seeming historical events. End of quote. The, this idea dominates the historical discipline to the extent that it is often assumed as self-evident. Heading a sharp distinction between literature and history in biblical criticism. Robin Lane Fox is a historian of antiquity presenting the dominant view of history's relationship to literature. Quote, If we read biblical narrative as a story, we abandon its historical truth. If we read it as literature, we will often find literary art in it, but this art takes us further from the truth when, which corresponds to the facts. The fourth gospel is an author's strong interpretation, not an exact memoir, end of quote. For Fox, John's gospel contains artistic and narrative elements that edge out historical truth. Quote, if we allow this degree of art and shaping, the results of literary study are already pushing historical truth to one side, end of quote. The elusiveness in biblical narrative has caused those influenced by this positivistic idea 
to reject biblical narratives historicity, the gospel inf infancy narratives, Jesus' parables, and the Passion are filled with references to Old Testament passages. Quote, not, surprising much of the, not surprisingly, much of the material in these sections has repeatedly been equated with Midrash, and the question has been raised whether the Old Testament passages might not have given birth to the narratives and teachings associated with them. In other words, the Gospel writers would not be recording actual historical events, but imaginatively involving Jesus in fictitious narratives and teachings inspired by Old Testament texts. End of quote. Examples of such Midrashic touches would be to invent a story about Jesus' birth at Jerusalem, Bethlehem because of a biblical passage, Micah 5.2, or Jesus' betrayal for 30 pieces of silver concocted because of Zechariah 11.12-13. The Gospels have different last words for Jesus according to another commentator, quote, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? From Matthew and Mark. Quote, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, end of quote, from Luke. And, quote, it is accomplished, end of quote, from John. Each alluding to Old Testament passages, literary critic Randall Helms concludes that these utterances are fictional. Quote, each narrative implicitly argues that the others are fictional. In this case, at least, it is inappropriate to ask the, of the Gospels what actually happened. They may pretend to be telling us, but the effort remains a pretense, a fiction. End of quote. This positivistic premise that literary features undermine historicity is a potent presupposition built into the modern project. It is also wrong. What Christians call typology, type scenes, archetypes, or any other word whose etymology traces to the Greek tupos, is to Helms fictionalizing, quote, such a view of the Old Testament allowed it to supply the basis for entire scenes in fictively historical books of the new, end of quote. The gospel writers, quote, rummaged, end of quote, through Old Testament narratives to rework stories as Christian prefigurations. The prophet who heals King Jeroboam's hand from 1 Kings 13, 4 to 6, becomes Jesus' Sabbath healing of a withered hand in Matthew 12, 10 to 13. Jesus' calming of the sea is based on the book of Jonah, quote, a literary fiction built from supposed prefigurement, end of quote, with Jonah's satyrs exhibiting great fear and the apostles also after witnessing the calm water. Helms has Luke reading widely in ancient literature, prolonging Paul's conversion from Euripides the Bacchae. Similarly, New Testament scholar John Darr falls into this positivistic habit first criticizing researchers who refer to Luke's literary quality, applying, quote, highly questionable assumptions about Luke's historicity. It is more historical than other Gospels and thus less likely to indulge in poetic illusion, end of quote. Later in the same chapter, Dar endorses this binary opposition between poetics and historicity. Similarly, E.P. Sanders, a major historian in the historical Jesus quest, asserts that typological New Testament textuality causes problems because all, although Jesus doubtless acted in ways consonant with Old Testament passages, the Gospel writers go beyond these real-life actions to invent other parallels. The birth narratives are particularly vulnerable to this charge. 
The typological connections between New and Old Testament events undermines the former's historicity. All gospel accounts aren't necessarily fabricated because, doubtless, Jesus thought his actions fulfilled biblical passages. Quote, This does not mean that every single passage in the Gospels had a reminiscent or echo of Hebrew scripture that really took place. Even parallels, end of quote, even parallels within the Gospels might reflect, quote, literary art, end of quote, rather than historical reality. I don't want to pile on with excessive examples, but a few more will demonstrate the ubiquity of this positivistic assertion. Biblical cr critic Raymond Brown notes the similarities between the infancy narratives and Moses' birth story, parallels between Pharaoh and Herod, and between Herod and King Balak. Old Testament annunciation type scenes and those of Mary and Elizabeth and the slaughter of the innocents and the Babylonian exile. Brown's conclusion, quote, such reflection, such reflected adherence to literary form raises a question about the historicity of stereotype features in the Lucan story, end of quote. Similar assumptions have been applied to Old Testament narrative, questioning its historicity, the loudest part of this debate goes under the umbrella of minimalist slash maximalist schools. Minimalists have disparaged biblical historical claims, asserting that literary features diminish historical reliability. The same approach is applied to Abraham and Moses, David and Jeremiah, and now being applied to the Gospels, New Testament stories, like biblical narratives about David and Daniel, repeat folktale and literary patterns. Quote, a historical Jesus is a hypothetical derivative of scholarship. It is no more a fact than is an equally hypothetical historical Moses or David, end of quote. The writer, according to this argument, had no historical intentions but literary, allegorical, theological, and mythic goals. Consequently, quote, there is a significant need not to speak of warrant to doubt the historicity of its figures to the extent that such figures owe their substance to such literature, end of quote. Biblical figures, including Jesus, are literary creations, which presumably precludes their also being historical. This false dichotomy between literature and history that Huizinga posited is, quote, rightly rejected by most scholars of ancient texts and by many who study modern historical writing as well. Definitions stressing the opposition between history and literature claiming scientific status or appealing to authorial intention are all difficult to defend. Recent decades have reversed historiographical assumptions regarding the history and literature relationship. Influenced by thinkers such as Hayden White and Jacques Derrida, all writing is now seen as literary, history writing included. An important critic of this sharp separation has been Robert Alter. He notes that history and literature are overlapping categories. Quote, what we need to remind ourselves, as several contemporary theorists of his historiography have proposed, is that those two categories are not mutually exclusive oppositions, end of quote. Alter argues that many historians confuse history and the history-like, relying on, quote, modern biblical scholarship rooted in a 19th century positivist mindset, end of quote. These historians hold a simplistic concept of truth and fiction. This goes for all literary features said to undermine historicity. Quote, As we attempt to identify symbols in John's Gospel, we will bear in mind that something can be both symbolic and historical. 
we can discern symbolic significance in images, events, or persons without under, undercutting their claims to historicity. And we can recognize that certain images, events, and people are historical without diminishing their, their symbolic value, end of quote. Critics of the Alma story have not recognized that Paul's Damascus Road experience belongs to a literary genre, the Old Testament prophetic commissioning type scene. Consequently, to call both stories fictional is to accept intellectually and historically undermined theories of textual relationship. That Luke uses Hebraic literary, Hebraic literary form, forms does not entail the narrative's fictionality. Quote, for it is entirely possible for quite accurate historical materials to be set down in different specific literary forms, just as a given writer's individual characteristic style need not mutilate the truth he intends to describe. So also the common literary style of a given historical period or specific circle of writers need not produce a distortion of historical facts. What we have in fixed what we have in fixed literary forms is the common literary style of a history, given historical period, end of quote. The historical discipline's center of gravity coalesces around an uncritical view that literary elements undermine historical accuracy. Philosophically sophisticated and theoretically informed historians are aware that the distinct separation between history and literature can no longer be maintained but few are the historical theorists compared to the practitioners who take an earlier generation's philosophy of history for granted. Heading. The hard distinction between literature and history in the Book of Mormon, in Book of Mormon criticism. Again, Brody sees Book of Mormon repetitions as proof of fiction. For Brody, quote, Alma was converted after the exact fashion of St. Paul, end of quote. Some examination of Alma's conversion in Paul's Damascus Rhotic story is in order, quote, other apparent biblical allusions in the Book of Mormon include Alma's conversion in a similar fashion to Paul's, end of quote. Other Book of Mormon critics have asserted that the historical and literary have no communion because presumably historical representations are free of literary and rhetorical structuring, quote. And in the case of claims about chiastic structuring of entire books, we must ask if the historical sequence events produce the chiasm or if the chiasm arranged the historical episodes. Because Book of Mormon apologists say that chiasmus is an intentional literary device, they must conclude that chiasmus can arrange historical episodes. At a minimum, this means that some historical details of the Lehite story may not have occurred in the order presented in the narrative. Apologists must also allow for the possibility that some historical incidents never happened, but were fictions imposed on the text to complete a chiastic structure designed to convey a moralistic or theological teaching, end of quote. Literary devices are antithetical to historical writing, according to this positivistic historical theory, quote, everything we know about the Jaredite ruler bears an analog to the corrupt Nephite ruler king. These mirrorings suggest that one narrative may depend on the other, and that only one or perhaps neither represents a factual account of historical events, end of quote. Similarly, if two Book of Mormon characters are typologically figured, this similarity undermines historical claims, quote, still allowing for literary device, questions regarding historicity remain, since it is possible that Noah and Riplakish, 
were actually monogamous, but were portrayed as polygamous to accentuate their debauchery. If Noah and Replakish existed anciently, the historicity of every detail of their biography sketches, biographical sketches, is nonetheless uncertain. End of quote. This view asserting a definitive boundary between history and literature is positivistic. Another critic asserts that because the Exodus motif is repeated in the Book of Mormon, the typology undermines confidence that historical events and people are being described. Quote, it is remarkable that many of the Nephite events and ideas occur at the same point in the chronology and at similar places as in the Israelite wilderness experience. These 20 shared motifs suggest dependency on the Bible Exodus story, end of quote. Though widely shared by historians who don't follow the contemporary debate about history and literature, narrative theory is where historians, philosophers, literary critics and, critics and others gather to focus on what all narratives, historical and fiction, have in common. Support for this positivistic historiographical position has been increasingly attenu attenuated recently. Heading, The Crumbling, Crumbling Boundaries Between History and Literature Since modern historians attempted to give their discipline scientific historical narrative, tried to make their discipline scientific, historical narrative has fallen under suspicion. Rather than math or statistics, measurements or computerized data, geological strata, or biological specimens, historic, historians are stuck with narratives, stories. Historical narratives too much resemble fiction to satisfy those with scientific aspirations. Quote, fictionality is a counter-concept of objectivity in the semantic context of positivistic epistemology. End of quote. Fictionality is opposed to the objectivity of facts empirically verifiable, according to this view. Quote, fictionality thus marks the ontological and epistemological status of those elements in historical knowledge and historiography which don't share the pure factuality of information from the sources. This term makes sense under the unquestioned presupposition of positivistic epistemology, end of quote. Historians fled from narrative between the 1880s and the 1970s. Now that history has undergone a new literary baptism, no longer can the positivistic distinction between historical factuality and fictionality be assumed. Since economics, sociology, and political science among the social sciences, much like them, history attempted to abandon story for nomological science. Quote, positivistic attacks on narrative mode, it seems, have left scars on its epistemic uh, reputation that have never fully healed, end of quote. The positivistic criticism of narrative is that narrative, is, narrative structure is imposed on brute data, not least to give the story a beginning, middle, and end, as opposed to, say, letting the facts speak for themselves. This positivistic conception of narrative's non-cognitive status has been discarded as researchers in philosophy, literary criticism, history, and other disciplines have recognized the ubiquity of story, but positivists still dismiss storytelling as a mode that doesn't deliver knowledge. If the historian imposes narrative structure on history instead of finding the pattern in the past, facts, or archive, this view undermines the representational status of narrative. 
other poetic devices such as figurative language are suspect to such historians, but conceding that history is constructed by historians, it doesn't follow that the interpretation is untrue. History can be both figural and literal at the same time, simultaneously historical and literary. Quote, the traditional argument would be to differentiate between factual and fictional narrations. Historical narration is usually defined as dealing only with facts and not with fictions. This differentiation is very problematical and finally not convincing because the all-important sense of a history lies beyond the distinction between fact and fiction. In fact, it is absolutely misleading and arises from a good deal of hidden and suppressed positivism to call everything in historiography fiction which is not fact in the sense of hard datum. End of quote. Responding to claims that biblical, feature, biblical literary features negate historical reference, Hoffmeyer argues that, quote, Using a literary or structural framework that includes such features as chiasm and doublets need not militate against the historicity of the narratives, end of quote. The problem is not with Hebraic narrative, but with positivistic notions about history. Quote, the tendency in contemporary English biblical studies is to consider literary critical and historical aspects of theological reflection as sharply distinct and to concentrate on the latter to the neglect of the former. This tendency derives from a period when positivistic conceptions of historical understanding went hand in hand with non-cognitive accounts of literary and poetic statement, which carried the implication that the fruit of literary critical reflection on the biblical narratives could only be, quote, subjective, end of quote, within the quote, in character. But if it has, has sometimes been assumed in theology and elsewhere that there is quote, a natural tension between the historian and the literary critic, end of quote within quote. There is no timeless validity to this assumption, end of quote. To assert lack of historicity because a text has literary features is to be 50 years outdated in the philosophy of the disciplines. Continental philosophy, Anglo-American philosophy, and every landmass as oceans and oceans literary criticism assert that the clear-cut distinction between, quote, empirical narratives, end of quote, and literary narratives is obsolete. The fossilized position desired to uncover the empirical facts underlying the historical story. Quote, for positivism, the task of history is to uncover the facts which are, as it were, buried in the documents. Just like, as Leibniz would have said, the statue of Hercules was lying dormant in the veins of the marble, Against the positivistic conception of historical fact, more recent epistemology emphasizes, quote, imaginative reconstruction, end of quote, within quote, which characterizes the work of the historian, end of quote. This narrative transformation profoundly impacts biblical readings. For example, the Gospel of Mark, quote, Mark is a self-consciously crafted narrative, a fiction, resulting from literary imagination, not photographic recall. To say it is a fiction does not necessarily mean that it has no connection with events in history. Rather, describing Mark as fiction serves to underscore the selection, construction, and choice behind the story it tells. End of quote. Selection, construction, and choice are present in all narrative. Literary features in narrative indicate nothing but nothing about fictive or historical status, because historical and literary narratives share those elements indifferently.
Most theorists distinguish between the fictive and the fictional. All narratives, especially histories, are fictive, that is, fashioned to serve specific purposes, as the etymology of fictive indicates. But such shaping doesn't make them fictional, that is, not about actual events and people. Mark is the specific example here, but the same is true of all biblical narrative. Beginning of long quote. Although understanding Mark to be fiction and to develop its own coherence and unity does not mean that what is related in the story bears no relationship whatsoever to the events of the external world, it does mean that the nature of the relationship is complex and difficult to ascertain, even in modern views of history writing, as a factual record of, quote, what really happened, end of quote, the constraints of narrative form on historiography blurred the distinction between history and fiction. The simultaneous conversion of events, actions, characters, and the constant bombardment of visual, oral, and vocal stimuli that all together constitute every moment of real life simply cannot be represented by linear narrative with its ordered sequence and grammatical requirements. Thus, even modern scientific history is but a highly selective distillation of quote, what really happened, end of quote. It is an interpretation of an event. Ancient historiography, particularly Hellenistic historiography, never pretended to be anything other than an, an interpretation. Speeches, characters, and even whole incidents could be created by the Hellenistic historian, and events for which records or sources existed were often thoroughly embellished. The aim of ancient history writing was rarely to produce an accurate chronicle or record. Rather, its purposes were moral edification, apologetics, glorification of certain families, and mainly entertainment. Indeed, if one were to assume that the Gospel of Mark belongs to the genre of Hellenistic historiography, one would still be involved in the dynamics of fiction. End of long quote. Awareness of history's fictive status has been excruciatingly slow to filter into Mormon studies. Consequently, older ideas still dominate. Heading, literary slash historical readings of Hebraic narrative. Hebraic narrative operates under different assumptions than does modern historiography. Moderns find repetition faulty and narrative mishap. They use words such as fictional, plagiarized, redundant, or copied to make sense of repeated motifs. Ancient viewed repetitions as more than more real than mundane life because these reoccurrences connected later events to foundational occurrences. Quote, In the Bible, however the matrix for illusion is often a sense for, of absolute historical continuity and recurrence, or an assumption that earlier events and figures are timeless ideological models by which all that follows can be measured. Since many of the biblical writers saw history as a pattern of cyclical repetition of events, there are abundant instances of this first category of illusion. End of quote. The Bible repeats exoduses under Joshua, the Judges, Ezra, Nehemiah, and many others because God's saving acts are paradigmatic for later Israelites. Similar insights have come from the literary side of biblical studies. Quote, I will examine the narrator's use of covert allusions to other narratives known to them and to their audience, specifically instances where the biblical narrator shaped a character or his or her actions 
as the antithesis of a character in another narrative, and that character's actions. The new creation awakens in the reader undeniable associations to the source story. The relationship between the new narrative and its source is like that between an image and its mirrored reflection. The reflection inverts a storyline of the original narrative, thus the discerning reader, considering the implicit relation between the two narratives, the original and its reflection, and observing how the new character behaves contrary to the character upon which or which he or she is modeled, will evaluate the new hero in light of the model. The comparison created between the two stories sheds new light on the source story and its protagonist. I call these inverted stories reflection stories. End of quote. Metcalf, Brody, and others assert such reflection stories indicate Book of Mormon fictionality. Grant Hardy, a literary aficionado slash historian not given to positivism, provides an entire chapter, chapter 6 of his book, Understanding the Book of Mormon, on such parallel narratives in the Book of Mormon. Such recognition places high demands on biblical New Testament and Book of Mormon readers. Quote, in contrast to what we have been taught by biblical scholars in the past who isolated literary units and analyzed them with no interest in their canonical content, one realizes that the biblical narratives did not function in a cultural literary vacuum, but constructed their stories in dialogue with existing compositions known to their audience. The narrators propound a riddle to their readers from whom they expect a high level of sophistication. A reader who absorbs the links and discerns the relationships between stories and their sources, and who will take note of the contrast between protagonists of the stories. The biblical narrator expects readers to become active partners, leaving to them the job of evaluating characters, but equipping them with an important, though covert, tool, the reflection story. I invite all students of the Bible to place the phenomenon of reflection stories on their agendas, end of quote. These parallel narratives should also be underscored for any Book of Mormon reader, reading under modern assumptions that fictive qualities preclude historiographical status is fallacious. Quote, Let me emphasize that the fictional quality of the struggle between God and the nation does not preclude the historicity of the, of the text. In the Bible, history and literature go hand in hand more explicitly than in modern historiography. End of quote. And even so, in modern historical narrative, what happens in biblical narrative happens also in Book of Mormon narrative. Asserting that Alma's conversion is copied from Paul's is to mistake both literary dependence on historicity. Alma's call has a sophisticated intertextual relationship to biblical prophetic commissioning stories, of which Paul's is merely one example, a relationship much more complicated than positivistic textual theory permits. Blake Osler has addressed this commissioning story genre, comparing Lehi's throne theophany and prophetic commission narrative to biblical and pseudographical stories. John Welch has also made a case connecting Lehi's commission narrative to Hebraic models. The Book of Mormon already draws upon biblical modes of prophetic activity before and after the Alma story, form criticism, and Osler's essay specifically labored an exercise in form criticism, the study of a story in terms of its adherence to and deviation from a literary genre, doesn't imply that a narrative is either historical or non-historical. Quote, 
to declare that a particular passage has a particular literary form says nothing about its historicity, end of quote. Ignoring this well-established principle is perilous. Osler notes two call narrative versions, one where a dialogue ensues between the newly called prophet and the Lord, or the Lord's representative, and the throne theophany variety where God is revealed before the commission is extended. Black notes that the oldest of the prophetic commission type scenes, Micah's throne theophany in 1 Kings 22, 19-22, Isaiah's throne theophany in chapter 6 of Isaiah, shows some departures from the gaton, German for form, in this, in this case, literary form or genre. When Ezekiel and Jeremiah developing the pattern still differently. Quote, among all these variables, however, two features of the tradition seem to be constant, the throne vision and the divine word of calling and commission, end of quote. Lehi's vision is the throne theophany variant, and Alma's, the narrative form. Both versions were, quote, eventually absorbed into the genre apocalypse, end of quote, which explains so many pseudepigraphical examples. Using Old Testament examples, Moses, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Micaiah, Ben Imla, Jeremiah, Osler details the elements of the prophetic commission. Number one, a historical introduction. The details of the commission and the confrontation are laid out. Two, a divine confrontation. Neither the Lord, either the Lord nor or an angel appears to extend the commission. Three, a reaction. The recipient often collapses or expresses inadequacy. Four, throne theophany. The prophet sees God on his throne or witnesses a divine counsel. Five, a commission. The prophet is assigned a task. Six, a protest. The prophet proclaims unworthiness or inability. Seven, reassurance. God assures the prophet support. Eight, conclusion. The prophet takes up his assignment. A common element Osler omits is the sign. Gideon asks for a sign in the fleece narrative, and Moses sees the burning bush. The sign in Alma's commissioning narrative is his being struck dumb and immobile. These commissioning stories, like all biblical type scenes, display both uniformity and innovation. They don't adhere mechanically to a genre, but modify the form to local needs. Additionally, the reader must read with the proper assumptions. Assuming a literary pattern negates historicity is problematical. Quote, One can no more distinguish fictional story from factual history on the basis of formal characteristics then one can distinguish non-referential from referential paintings on the basis of brushstrokes, end of quote. Regardless of the story's origin dates, quote, understanding conversion as a hermeneutic project in the 12th century as it is, is as a hermeneutic as it is today, end of quote. Approaching the text with presuppositions too modern results in inadequate interpretations. Heading Paul's commissioning type scene. If textual similarity means plagiarism, then Paul's prophetic commission story is itself already plagiarized. Paul's conversion story isn't novel, for, quote, Luke's account of Paul's conversion are deliberately patterned on Hebrew prophecy, end of quote, including commissioning stories of Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Isaiah. 
The apocalyptic form was absorbed into Christianity eventually and influenced the Revelation and Paul's commission. These call type scenes function as, quote, vindication and legitimization of the prophetic, of the prophet in his office, end of quote. One biblical scholar notes 27 Old Testament examples of commission type scenes, but the New Testament contains 37. Hedrick disagrees with Monk about some elements in Paul's call scene. They agree, though, that the Paul narrative adheres to the prophetic commissioning formula. Quote, A simpler and more reasonable explanation is that Luke has, was responsible for stylizing the narratives in Acts along the lines of Old Testament call narratives. End of quote. The version in Acts 26, 16 to 17 makes adherence to Old Testament prophetic called narratives clear by alluding to the language from the other commission stories, Ezekiel 2, 1, Jeremiah 1, 8, Jeremiah 1, 7, and Ezekiel 2, 3, which are all patterned, after, patterned on Moses' prophetic call story. This Pauline conversion story is so studded with biblical allusions that any adequate reading would concede its intentional elusive quality. Moses' call is the gold standard for such narratives, but the calls of Gideon, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Micaiah, and Deuteroisaiah also fit the pattern. Invoking the pattern claims an ancient authority for the new prophet, quote, the employment of the literary form in no way negates the reality of the call encounter itself, but underscores the relevance of this form for the public affirmation of the claims which the prophet is making as Yahweh's spokesman. End of quote. Paul's story, or Alma's, fits the cultural background of the ancient world, so simplistic and reductive readings that assume its modern provenance should minimally consider the text narrative's depth and, and complexity. For example, Second Maccabees contains the story of Heliodorus, a better parallel to, Al, parallel to Alman's narrative than Paul's is, showing a rebel against God whose conversion is initiated by the people's prayers led by the high priest, resulting in the recipients being struck dumb and prostate until supplication arrives, revives him from death's threshold, Heliodorus, commanded by the Seleucid king, journeys to Jerusalem to confiscate temple treasury. The high priest, temple priests, and people pray for divine intervention. At the temple, two divine beings, quote, remarkably strong, gloriously beautiful, and splendidly dressed, end of quote, and a mounted warrior accost the temple defiler. He collapses and he is carried away on a stretcher blind, prostrate, and dumb. Fearing the king's retribution, the high priest and the people intercede, praying and offering sacrifice for recovery. Heliodorus recovers after being warned again by the messengers, whereupon he sacrifices to God, testifying, quote, to all men of the deeds of the supreme God, which he had seen with his own eyes, end of quote. Second Maccabees 3.36 the similarities between Paul's experience, Heliodorus' encounter, and other Hellenistic parallels are a commonplace of Pauline scholarship. That cluster of commissioning narratives should include Almas. Scholars of early Christ, scholar of early Christianity, Paula Fredrickson, doubts conversion is the right word for Paul's sidestep into Christianity. It implies a shift between belief systems.
But Paul's change was between two varieties of Jewish belief. Call is a better word. We must casually refer, we might casually refer to Paul's or Alma's conversion, but any such reference should mean a prophetic call which foregrounds the biblical roots of the Gatom. For Paul and Alma, the change is dramatic, from fighting the church to advocating for it. The prophetic commission has common elements. In Table 1, I note the eight elements of biblical scholarship, usually lists as part of the form. The Paul and, and Lehi stories closely follow the literary form. The two versions of Alma's prophetic commission adhere faithfully to the pattern also, as shown in Table 2. The tables can't be reproduced adequately here in an audio recording. The most obvious clue to a prophetic commission type scene occurs when Alma 2 quotes from Lehi's throne theophany, quote, Methought I saw even as our father Lehi saw, God sitting upon his throne, surrounded with numberless concourses of, of angels, in the attitude of singing and praising their God. Yea, my soul did long to be there. Alma 36.22 Even with the omission of this element in the first iteration, Alma 27.11-17, this reference connects the two most prominent call narratives to each other and to the biblical tradition by foregrounding the divine counsel. Considering Old Testament call narratives, historian of religion and biblical scholar Itzvan Seshek says of Acts 9 that, quote, It is not difficult to isolate most of the above-mentioned components there. Scholars agree that Acts 9 presents us with a commission narrative that shows remarkable similarities to the commission of the prophets in the Jewish scriptures, end of quote. Paul's narrative varies in detail from other commissioning stories, adding innovative, touch, innovative touches such as the role of Ananias in multiple visions, but none rotely repeats the, the tradition. Each Lucan narrative offers differs based on the author's intent. In Acts 9, Luke presents the institutional commissioning version following Jewish traditions of Paul, Saul's commissioning as Israel's first king. Remember Saul's, remember Paul's earlier name, Saul, Plus, both were Benjaminites. Acts 22 and 26 portray the event differently, relying on different Jewish traditions. Acts 22 shows Paul as heir to Isaiah and Jeremiah, prophets in conflict with their own people. Acts 26, narrating Paul's apology before Agrippa and Festus, depicts Paul as a wandering philosopher divinely commissioned. Commissioning stories written by the same author vary according to the rhetorical purpose and audience. Galatians contains Paul's own commission account, independent of Lucan versions. Galatians 1, 12-16 alludes to Old Testament prophetic call narratives, paralleling his own calling. He was called an apostle before birth, referring to Isaiah 49.1 and Jeremiah 1.5, where the prophets were called from the womb. Quote, Thus in Galatians, Paul describes his experience in terms of, prof- of a prophetic call Similar to that of Isaiah and Jeremiah, he felt handpicked by God after the prophetic model to take the message of God and Christ to the Gentiles. This calling isn't a conversion, according to Christer Stendhal, because the wording implies a change of religious orientation. Instead, Paul shifted from one view of Torah and Israel's chosenness to a different orientation within Judaism. Johannes Monk 
Professor of early Christianity notes only the allusion to Paul's calling from the, to, from the womb, but also includes Samson's commission, called as a Nazarite from the womb, Judges 16:17. Quote, when Paul applies these biblical expressions to his own call, he must be thinking not only that he thereby illustrates God's call to him personally, but that the call is the same as it was in the case of Jeremiah and Deutero-Isaiah, a renewal of God's will for the salvation of Gentiles, giving him a place in the history of salvation in line with those of Old Testament figures. End of quote. Not only does the Galatians passage allude to Old Testament callings, but the three accounts in the Acts do also. Quote, Paul thought that those texts from the prophets expressed his own call. End of quote. Acts 22 differs from the better-known story in Acts 9. Acts 22, 16-18 relates Paul's mission to turn the Gentiles, quote, from darkness to light, end of quote, and is, quote, virtually a direct reference to Ezekiel 128, end of quote. And Ezekiel's commission continued in chapter 2, verses 1 and 3. The language also invokes prophetic commissions from Jeremiah and Isaiah. In Acts 26, in front of Agrippa, a repeated Roman authority on all things Jewish, Paul's speech is, quote, an elaborate tissue of Old Testament quotations. Old Testament prophecies find their fulfillment in Paul's call to the Gentile mission, end of quote. A common feature in Old Testament prophetic commissioning type scenes is some prophetic inadequacy. For Paul, in Galatians 1.13, the obstacle is Paul's persecution of Christians. Moses, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel also have weaknesses. Of all the prophetic commissions alluded to in Galatians, Isaiah 49.1 and 5 is the most relevant and foremost on Paul's mind. Quote, Paul did not understand his commission in terms of any particular prophet. He describes his call in terms and motifs that were analogous to the call of Isaiah, Jeremiah, and the servant of God. It comes as no surprise that Isaiah 49 holds the dominant place, end of quote, among these prophetic calls. Similarly, Alma's weakness is his former enmity toward God in his inherited religious tradition. Quote, I rejected my Redeemer, and denied that which had been spoken of by our fathers, end of quote, Mosiah 27.30. Yea, I also saw that I had rebelled against my God, and I had not kept his holy commandments, end of quote, Alma 36.13. New Testament scholar Fernando Mendez Moratala cites a consistent pattern of Lucan conversion stories when he calls what he calls, quote, a paradigm of conversion, end of quote, making up Quote, the oldest Christian narrative style, end of quote. The paradigm includes the following. God takes the initiative to save the world, especially the poor and the outcasts, through the Son. Societies marginalized are welcome despite their rejection by the rich and powerful. All need salvation because even the religious establishment and wealthier sinners, the sinners repent and turn to God, donating the worldly goods to help the poor. The repentant receive forgiveness and are welcome to Messianic feasts where status reversal occurs, the marginalized being honored. This conversion paradigm then becomes normative for the tradition following Luke. So Paul's story models readerly expectations of radical transformations. Quote, The prominence that the stories on the conversion of Paul have received 
has overshadowed other similar accounts to the point that Paul's experience has become normative for all conversions and expressions, such as Damascus Road experience, have become tantamount to any conversion-like experience, not only in the religious sense, end of quote. Ultimately, Paul's narrative overwhelms our own for, quote, Paul was destined to become the prototypical convert in the imagination of Western Christianity, end of quote. In the Western tradition, this narrative exemplifies radical change, so it establishes the expectations for other notable conversions by Augustine and Luther. Paul's experience became a template by which later Christians understood their own conversions, that typicality doesn't make conversions factual, or fictional, excuse me. Quote, like Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus, upon which it is demonstrably modeled, Augustine's above conversion scene has become one of the principal, well-worn, well-worn paradigms of Western Christianity. End of quote. Louis Rambo uses the word paradigm to generalize about the impact of Augustine's story on later generations. Quote, Conversions, especially within the Christian tradition, typically generate stories of that process which may then stimulate conversion in others. These stories, as they are retold orally and composed as autobiographies, become the paradigms by which people interpret their own lives. End of quote. Rambo cites convert examples with lives transformed from reading Augustine's confessions. But Augustine's conversion type scene is already belated. Quote, the tradition of conversion stories is derived, at least in part, from the book of Acts in the New Testament. The conversions of Paul, Cornelius, and the Philippian jailer, and Lydia point to the personal impact of religious change. Every story of conversion calls for a conversion, confirms the validity of the conversion, and shapes a person's experience of the conversion. End of quote. Scholars have noted the patterns among conversion narratives positing six motifs, intellectual, mystical, experimental, affectational, revivalist, and coercive. The, quote, mystical conversion is considered by some to be the prototypical conversion, as in the case of Saul of Tarsus. Mystical conversion is generally a sudden traumatic burst of insight induced by visions, voices, or other paranormal experiences, end of quote. Paul and Augustine are the two great exemplars in the Christian tradition, prototypes of dramatic changes wrought by conversion. Alma's name ought to be added to that list. Heading, Augustine's Conversion. Augustine's conversion story exemplifies how literary features are assumed to contradict, contradict histori historicity when alien, modern, positivistic assumptions are employed. Leo Ferrari tells his own stereotype stories of encounters with Augustine's conversion account, how he proved, quote, the essentially fictional character of his famous conversion scene, end of quote, in the Confessions. Positivistic indicators are abundant in Ferrari's claims. Ferrari found, quote, a scientific method, end of quote, to explore Augustine's compositions, combining a concordance and using computers to analyze the saint's words, leading to, quote, Irrefutable proof of the fictional nature, quote, of Augustine's conversion narrative, quote, born of the fertile imagination and ingenuity of the then 43-year-old Augustine, end of quote. With computer, and concordance, with computer and concordance, plotting references in Augustine's writings to a specific timeline, Ferrari claims to have, 
quote, scientifically demonstrated for the first time in history that the conversion scene was obviously quite fundamentally fictional in nature, end of quote. Rather than being historical, Leo Ferrari asserts the confession's conversion is a dramatic event that lacks historicity for, quote, we must bear in mind that Augustine saw not, saw not contradiction between truthful history and figurative expression. Indeed, Augustine explicitly defends the use of figures in spiritual writings, including even the Bible itself, end of quote. I side with Augustine on this one. I see no inherent contradiction between historical truth and literary expression. Ferrari is burdened with dated positivistic ideas about history and figuration. Ferrari believes that his account is, quote, scientific, unquote, indisputable, proven, empirical, certain. He rails against the research consensus that perversely refuses to accept his argument. He imputes evil motives to his opponents rather than accepting that they might begin from non-positivistic presuppositions. Ferrari dates the debate between the, quote, historicists and, quote, fictionalists, end of quote, to 1888, when two crucial studies were published. For Ferrari, a literary element such as a symbol, for example, the fig tree in Augustine's story, fundamentally indicates fiction. For Ferrari, historical narration is less truthful when incorporating literary elements, citing a contrast between literary and empirical slash verifiable controls that positivists commonly invoke. Quote, these various aspects of Augustine's notion of truth in the Confessions bespeak an interiorized mystical mode of truth, far removed from the empirically verifiable kind called for by the debate about the conversion scene. End of quote. For Ferrari, Augustine's conversion scene can only be true in a symbolic way. It didn't factually happen in history. Quote, we have seen how Augustine's notion of truth in the Confessions transcends empirical verifiability, and so too the whole question of factuality or fictionality of the conversion scene, end of quote. For one brand of positivist, an event must be empirically verifiable in order to rise to the level of historical knowledge. Epistemological questions about how the past can be empirically verified are rarely addressed by positivists. Quote, it was shown in a 1968 study that the fig tree, by reason of its widespread symbolism in Augustine's milieu, had a very definite relation, not merely to the conversion scene, but to the entire eighth book of the Confessions. This demonstrated yet again the extreme care with which the entire description of the conversion scene had been constructed and so supported the claims of the fictionalists. End of quote. Ferrari has difficulty reconciling the Augustine who wrote Tracts Against Lying with the author of the Confessions, who, quote, made up, end of quote, the most crucial event in his story. Ferrari uses the concept of fiction. The Confessions is a dramatic staging of a conversion with more influence if it follows a well-known conversion type scene. Augustine himself, according to Ferrari, asserts that one can lie using figurative language and not falsify because of, of figuration. Quote, Coming as it does just before the writing of the Confessions, that manner of signification offers a convenient starting point for the truth of the subject and figurative language in regard to Augustine's Paulinizing 
of his conversion scene. According to Ferrari, Augustine took liberties with the historical record because the demonstrable similarities of Augustine's conversion to that of Paul would not only increase the impact upon his audience, but such similarities would have no doubt been about the origins of his own conversion and the spiritual tradition to which it belongs, end of quote. Similar positivistic claims about the Book of Mormon's symbolic truth, while lacking historicity, are sometimes made within the Mormon tradition. Augustine's, quote, lively appreciation of figurative language becomes an important factor in interpreting the conversion scene as a metaphorical expression of an extraordinary transformation which has undoubtedly occurred in his life, if not exactly the form described in the justly famous conversion scene, end of quote. Similar to Ferrari, Fredrickson reconstructs Augustine's conversion such that the Church Father's own perspective changed radically between the event in 3086 A.D. and his own account of the event in the Confessions in 400 A.D. when Augustine needed to rehabilitate Paul's image of the Father's polemic with the Manichaeans. Quote, Augustine's account of his conversion in the Confessions, in other words, is a theological reinterpretation of the past event, an attempt to render his past coherent to his present self. It is, in fact, a disguised description of where he stands in the present as much as an ostensible description of what occurred in the past. And he constructs his own descriptions from his reading of Acts 9 as well as from his new theological convictions. End of quote. Paul becomes a prototype of Augustine's own passage from sinner to salvation, from rebel to believer. According to this textual theory, Augustine fictionalizes his own account of his own experience. Ferrari summarizes the historicists who believe Augustine's conversion account is historical, but others, the fictionalists, find Augustine's accounts embellished and minimally, minimally and romanticized maximally. When a literary feature emerges, the fig tree in Augustine's story parallel to the fig tree in Nathaniel's call in John 1.48, this signifies to fictionalists literary mid-mashing going on, undermining historicity. Here two trends merge in the relevant literatures. The positivistic one sees any literary theme, motif, or feature to indicate feature, fiction. The other views life and history as inherently fictive experiences, always corresponding to motifs and themes, with the literary as a, an inescapable part of historical narrative. Heading Alma's Commission and Theophanies. Alma's commissioning narrative is complex. Allusions to biblical passages are just one aspect of that complexity. Reading, uh, readings asserting larceny are too simplistic to explain their sophistication. To adequately treat Alma's Kalnuk account, the reader must begin earlier with the prophetic commissionings in the book of Mosiah. Mormon, in editing the record, doesn't discuss Abinadi's prophetic commissioning. He just hints at, hints at it by having Abinadi say the following when he emerges publicly. Quote, Behold, thus saith the Lord, and thus hath he commanded me, saying, end of quote, from Mosiah 11.20, suggesting direct discourse between the Lord and the newly called prophet. When Abinadi reemerges, initially in disguise, after two years, he again pronounces his calling, quote, Thus hath the Lord commanded me, saying, 
Abinadi, go and prophesy unto this people, this my people. End of quote, Mosiah 12.1. We aren't told the nature of the disguise, but veils and disguises are often part of these commissioning scenes. Abinadi's two-year absence and disguise when he returns are forms of concealment, symbolically invoking a traditional biblical formula. Quote, In several scenes of prophetic commission or recommission, particular emphasis falls on the silence or concealment of the prophet, end of quote, which, quote, taking Moses and Elijah as examples, I identify prophetic silence or concealment as part of the type scene of prophetic crises and commissions or recommissions. End of quote. Moses' Moses's veiled face from Exodus 34, 33 to 35. Elijah also disguises himself, 1 Kings 19, 13. And Ezekiel conceals his face, Ezekiel 12, 6, by divine command. Abinadi's story alludes to this tradition with the nexus of a wicked prophet, confrontational prophet, and wicked king, confrontational prophet, and disguise, Mosiah 12.1. And his successor, Alma, Alma 1, conceals himself, Mosiah 7.4, emphasizing this feature. The type scene is flexible, but, quote, the prophet is concealed or restrained at a moment of danger and theophany, end of quote, with four customary elements. One, a crisis emerges because the people have broken God's covenant. Two, resulting in a theophany. Three, followed by a prophetic commissioning. And four, a, quote, new divine plan is given and it takes effect immediately, end of quote. This narrative form fits the Abinadi narrative. The nature of Abinadi's disguise isn't specified, but in the specific, in the biblical type scene, quote, most prophetic concealment or restraint is accomplished by a garment, a veil, mantle, cloak, or other cords or cords of netting that bind Ezekiel, end of quote. The root of the conflict from Moses and Elijah is the Israelites' rebellion against God. Elijah flees to the desert after his confrontation with the priests of Baal, and Moses destroys the golden calf and then derides the people for faithlessness. Abinadi also speaks for God that, quote, this generation because of their iniquity shall be brought into bondage, end of quote, Mosiah 12.2. This because they violate the law of Moses, Mosiah 12.29. Like Elijah and Moses, Abinadi contemplates his own death, Mosiah 13.7-9. Theophany is another element. Both Moses and Elijah visit the sacred mountain, sitting on the rock cleft for 40 days, talking with God, lamenting covenantal breakdown and wickedness. In each biblical theophany, concealment of the prophet's face is required. After Noah and his priests declare Abinadi insane and attempt to seize him, the story invokes the Moses narrative. Quote, touch me not, end of quote, Abinadi charges, quote, for the spirit of the Lord was upon him and his face shone with exceeding luster, even as Moses did while in the Mount of, si- Mount of Sinai, while speaking with the Lord, end of quote, Mosiah 13, 3 and 5. Abinadi's command not to touch him introduces a common theophanic theme. The pr- proximity to the divine, to divine manifestations is dangerous. In the bloody bridegroom episode, God almost kills Moses, 
Aaron's sons are killed in the tabernacle, and Uzzah is killed for studying the ark. In the Golden Calf narrative, the, quote, veil episode is part of the reordering of the community and the renewal of the covenant, end of quote, serving as a folk theophany. Other biblical passages point to the radiance emanating from God, God's messenger or God's prophet, quote, something of the divine radiance was imparted then to Moses' faith, which thereafter also shone, end of quote. The Israelites fear Moses and keep their distance. After the first shining face event followed by a veil covering, the occurrence becomes routine, with Moses always donning the veil after the theophany to commune with the people. Moses' faith, face is by this time uncovered, but the radiance functions to reveal God and establish prophetic authority. Moses' faith shines in his official capacity as messenger. He only dons the veil when returning to private life, and the shining effects linger after the theophany. Abinadi's initial disguise openly reveals the prophet's shining face. Quote, the status of the prophet mirrors the status of the covenant. Concealment reflects the majesty of a theophany and the tension between the revelation and concealment in ancient Israelite religion, end of quote. The concealment theme emerges once more. Abinadi cites a suffering servant theme from Isaiah, from Isaiah 53. This servant is, quote, despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with much grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him, end of quote, Mosiah 14.3. While Abinadi's face is revealed in splendor, the people hide their own faces from the covenantal mediator who bears their grief and carries their sorrows. Brit cites a similar passage from Micah 3, 4-8 where the Lord hides his face from the people who have embraced false prophets. As Abinadi and Paul associate their ministries with Moses's, so do the people with Alma, especially in the manner of his death, Alma 45, 19. The three are joined by stories of prophetic commissioning. Paul's experience is patterned after Moses' encounter with divinity. In 2 Corinthians 2-4, Paul frames his own calling in terms of Moses' throne theophany, another prophetic commission in, in Isaiah 42, especially 2 Corinthians 3, 13-18. Abinadi's Moses connection is powerfully made as Abinadi teaches the law of Moses isolating the Ten Commandments in Mosiah 12 and 13. The discourse's first half focuses on the violated Mosaic law, and the second half on the telos of the law, the telos of the law, the atonement of Christ when, quote, God himself should come down among the children of men, end of quote, Mosiah 13:34. The argument structure is reflected in the message. The focus shifts to Christ's intercession. Quote, Salvation did not come by the law alone, and were it not for the atonement which God himself shall make for the sins and inequity, inequities of the people. End of quote. Mosiah 13.28 The law isn't mentioned again until Abinadi's last words. Quote, Therefore, if you teach the law of Moses, also teach that it is a shadow of things which are to come, Teach them that redemption cometh through Christ the Lord, who is the very eternal Father. Amen. End of quote. Mosiah 16, 14-15. An additional element of the type seen is the prophetic commissioning or recommissioning. Often this 
recommissioning, strengthens the prophets for the difficulties ahead, and reaffirms the covenant. In the Book of Mormon story, the commissioning comes with an appointment of a successor to the prophet. Quote, In almost every other case, there's a reference to the concealment or silence of the prophet. End of quote. Alma, Alma 1, one of the priests and Abinadi's prophetic successor, fled the court and, quote, went about privately among the people to begin to teach the words of Abinadi, end of quote, Mosiah 18.1. But he must flee further into the wilderness and hide from the king's servants. The next element requires some physical journey as the covenant is reaffirmed. The prophet is again established as the covenantal mediator and, quote, this sometimes involves the continuation of a physical journey back to Israel, back into battle, or back to the work of, the media, of mediating between God and his people, end of quote. Alma 1, the new prophet of the renewed covenant, reaffirms that pact as he baptizes, Mosiah 13, 8-10. But Noah discovers this defection, and the Alma group flees further, Mosiah 13, 34. They settle in Helam, where, where Alma 1 refuses kingship. They appoint new teachers and keep the commandments, prospering in their work. The Lamanites enslave them, and they eventually migrate to Zarahemla, where the people reorder their political system. Moses' veil is a form of masking, and it is about establishing his authority. Quote, the research suggests that Moses' masking contains cultural and theological significance about God, leadership, law, and community, end of quote. The Abinadi story also has the prophet masking and also has Abinadi with a shining face. Throughout the episode, the story explicitly refers to the Moses story, the Ten Commandments, and the Law of Moses. Abinadi's shining face demonstrates God's glory, it's kabod, shining through the, his prophet and shows only that Abinadi's power comes from God, but places the prophet and his message on par with Moses. Thomas Dozman views both the veil and the shining face to be masks. Quote, a mask, according to Ronald Grimes, is any mode of facial stylization intended to transform the body. A mask, therefore, is a disguise, but a paradoxical one. It both conceals and reveals identity. Masks often hide the identity of the wearer, in order to represent another power or person. Thus a mask transforms the wearer, bringing about a metamorphosis or alteration of identity. End of quote. Masks have two functions, concretion and concealment. Each is illustrated in the Moses and Abinadi stories. For concretion, the shining face of Moses, of Moses demonstrates God's power penetrating through the mask. Quote, the mask gives substance and forms form to the outside power by representing deity. In the process, the everyday identity of the wearer is concealed and transformed, end of quote. Concealment or masking works differently than concretion. Quote, masking is concealment both hides the everyday identity of the wearer and associates the primary face with that of the person. As a result, masks of concealment accentuate the authority of the wearer by separating the person from everyday culture, end of quote. As with Abinadi, King Noah asks, quote, Who is Abinadi that I and my people should be judged of him, end of quote, Mosiah 11.27, on the question of the prophet's authority. Moses' veil separates him from the Israelites and increases his authority. 
Abinadi's confrontation takes place in a judicial context, his own trial, as a trial in which the prophet berates the people for breaking legislation, requiring a reiteration of the Ten Commandments and reassertion of the Mosaic Law. Quote, The veil symbolizes unification and consolation of judicial authority in Moses. It designates Moses as the lawgiver who administers divinely revealed legislation into the life of Israel. End of quote. This legal emphasis in Moses' story is also why Abinadi refers insistently to the law of Moses that the Xenophites are violating. Masks are about prophetic office. Coates asks if Moses' veil is particular to Moses or representative of some office. The shining face and the veil represent the prophetic office, his authority to speak in God's name. Coates notes the transfiguration of Jesus, Matthew 17, has a similar function. Quote, the concern of the transfiguration scene, whether in the Moses tradition or in the Jesus tradition, is to paint a picture of the leader who carries the authority of God for his community. End of quote. These biblical motifs are used in the New Testament. Quote, the briefest glance at the Markan, Markan uh, transfiguration scene re- reveals a narrative liberally seasoned with Jewish motifs, end of quote, pointing mostly to Moses' theophany that includes a six-day time frame, setting on a mountain, a physical change in the hero, tents, clouds, voices, and the visit of Moses and Elijah, quote, have led many to argue that the transfiguration account is purely a reformulation of Exodus 24 and 1 Kings 19, end of quote. Mark could be described as plagiarizing the Moses and Elijah accounts. The narrative richness is deepened by the elusive quality. The brightness of the divine commission veils the meaning from superficial readers who see plagiarism at work instead of illusion. Many prophetic commissioning stories transition prophetic authority to a successor. Elijah anoints Elisha. Moses appoints Joshua. Abinadi doesn't anoint his successor, Alma I, because the narrative doesn't have them meet personally, except as they both were present at the prophet's trial. The prophetic call stories in Mosiah not only have a succession, but also a bonus narrative. Abinadi is followed by Alma I, and the latter by Alma II, so by Mosiah 29, Alma II has succeeded his father as high priest and prophet. He is recognized as a prophet by Amulek in Alma 8.20 and by the angel in Alma 10.7. The setting of Alma's commission is one of rebellion. As Alma and Mosiah's sons go about this business, an angel appears causing the earth to shake and they collapse. Like Paul and Alma, Both Isaiah and Ezekiel are, quote, thrown to the ground by the impact of the divine manifestation, end of quote. Septuagint divine commissions often shift from the reproof stage to the calling by commanding to arise and enter. This is reflected in Acts 9-6, where Alma is told to arise. Similarly, in Mosiah 27-13, Alma is commanded to, quote, arise and stand forth, end of quote. After the stunned recipients gained sufficient wits to understand, the angel notes, quote, The Lord has heard the prayers of his people and also the prayers of his servant Alma, who is thy father, end of quote. Verse 14, that's Mosiah 27:14, And has intervened following that intercessory prayer. 
present in many non-biblical theophanies, but no doubt biblical examples, but no biblical, excuse me, present in many non-biblical theophanies, but no biblical examples, the intercessory prayer is offered by the prophet. For Alma's commissioning, his father Alma I is the high priest. Alma I organizes an intercessory prayer for Alma, Mosiah 27, 20-22, and the prayer triggers the angelic intervention, Mosiah 27:14. After the intervention, the angel specifically commands Alma II to go, to quote, go and remember the captivity of thy fathers in the land of Elam and in the land of Nephi, and remember how great things he has done for them, for they were in bondage and he has delivered them, end of quote, Mosiah 27, 16. Almost every narrative involving Alma II thereafter emphasizes how he keeps the angel's injunction. In Zarahemla, Alma recalls the Zen of Colony's deliverance from Noah and the Lamanites, asking if the audience has similarly remembered comparing physical deliverance to spiritual redemption. Quote, Have you sufficiently retained in remembrance the captivity of our fathers, Yea, and have you sufficiently retained in remembrance his mercy and long-suffering toward them? And moreover, have you sufficiently retained in remembrance that he has delivered their souls from hell? End of quote. Alma 5, 4, 7. Similarly preaching at Ammoniah, Alma asks, quote, Have you forgotten the tradition of your fathers and the commandments of God? Alma 9, 8. He reminds them of Lehi's deliverance from Jerusalem and the many instances since that God, quote, delivered our fathers out of the hands of their enemies and preserved them from being destroyed, even by the hands of their own brethren, end of quote, Alma 9.10. After meeting with the sons of Mosiah, Alma laments that he can't more forcefully declare the gospel. He reminds his readers of the calling he received. Thus, quote, thus we see the great call of diligence of men to labor in the vineyard of the Lord, end of quote, Alma 28.14. He has to be satisfied his calling is different from Mosiah's sons, Alma 29.6. This call language recalls his own commissioning scene reported in Mosiah 27, quote, All that I were an angel and could have the wish of mine heart, that I might go forth and speak with the trump of God, with a voice to shake the earth, end of quote, Alma 29.1. The angel who commissioned Alma and the sons of Mosiah did exactly that, spoke with an earth-shaking voice. These similarities between Alma, Alma's commissioning narrative and this passage are apparent as shown in Table 3, which can't be represented audibly here. Alma can't preach in foreign lands as the sons of Mosiah did, but he commends their work and notes he kept the angel's injunction, quote, Yea, and I also remember the captivity of my fathers, for I surely do know that the Lord did deliver them from bondage. Yea, I have been, I have always remembered the captivity of my fathers. End of quote. Alma 29, 11 to 12. This remembrance injunction emerges twice when Alma recounts his conversion experience, because that passage, because that passage is a, is a chiastic structure. He urges his son Helaman that he, quote, should do as I have done in remembering the captivity of the fathers, end of quote, and their deliverance, Alma 36.2. Alma has a second theophany when preaching at Ammoniah. The people completely reject him. When departing, the angel from his commissioning scene stops him, Alma 
14 to 17, to redirect and strengthen him. An auxiliary theme in biblical commissioning type scenes is food. Sometimes the theme is feasting and sometimes fasting. Both Moses and Elijah fast for 40 days at Horeb. When Moses has the Mount Horeb theophany, with all of Israel witnessing his shining face, the feasting theme emerges, quote, Mentions of food in the type scene can relate to fasting, sacrifice, divine provision, or divine displeasure, end of quote, all centering around the people's breaking of the covenant. Similarly, when Alma re-enters Ammoniah, quote, he was and hungered, Alma 9.19, and asked Amulek for food, for Alma, quote, had fasted many days, end of quote, Alma 8.26. Not only does Amulek impart, quote, impart of his food to Alma, end of quote, but he gives bread until Alma was, quote, filled. Alma 8, 22 to 23. After repenting, Alma begins a new phase of life. His prophetic commission is implied, as noted both the angel and Amulek call him a prophet, although his official title is more commonly used, high priest. From his commission, Alma begins, Quote, began from this time forward to teach the people, end of quote, Mosiah 27:32. although the rest of the chapter focuses on the sons of Mosiah. Alma uses angel and earth-shaking imagery from his conversion scene to refer to, quote, the work which I have been, to which I have been called, end of quote, Alma 29:6:13. He also refers more generally to all who have been, quote, all who have been called to this holy calling, end of quote, of preaching. Alma 13.4. When Alma talks about his life-changing event, he notes, quote, I have labored without ceasing, end of quote, Alma 36.24, since to let others taste the gospel fruit, and in Ammoniah, he notes, his calling to preach by the spirit of revelation and prophecy refers to the preaching he performed after the holy order to which he had been called, Alma 43.1-2. Although understated, the Mosiah 27 experience is the beginning of Alma's prophetic calling. A standard feature of commissioning scenes has the Lord warning about the difficulty of the task. Commonly, the prophet is comforted that the Lord will strengthen and enable him. Ezekiel 2, 6-7 exhorts Ezekiel to fearlessness. Jeremiah 1.8 also contains this admonition which Zimmerly says demonstrates, quote, to be an essential part of the call narrative, end of quote. Most commissioning scenes anticipate hardship and rejection. Quote, Jeremiah and Ezekiel are told to expect hard opposition from the, harsh opposition from the people, and Isaiah's commission to deceive the people in order to bring about their destruction, Isaiah 69, 9 to 11, is hardly the sort of behavior calculated to lead to popular acclaim, end of quote. Similarly, the narrator notes that as Alma and his friends teach immediately after his call, he faced, quote, much tribulation, being greatly persecuted by those who were unbelievers, being smitten by many of them, end of quote, Mosiah 27:32, but always, quote, being supported under trials and troubles of every kind, yea, in all manner of afflictions, end of quote, Alma 36.27. As with biblical call stories, prophetic commissioning narratives in Mosiah don't mechanically follow a schema. Quote, the elements of the type scene do not march in lockstep, but they form a constellation-like pattern that adds interpretive value because of their associations, end of quote. 
the relationship between the two main iterations of Alma's prophetic commission is sophisticated, as is the relationship between Alma's commissioning scene and Paul's. Asserting plagiarism is just too naive to be satisfactory. Heading, the conversion paragram, paradigm. Epigram, conversion stories always idealize. From early Christianity, conversion stories to the convert arrived yesterday. The narratives presume some pattern moving from sinful life through a radical break leading to a new faith. My Latter-day Saint Stake holds missionary firesides monthly. Since I started work on this conversion concept, I have attended several. The convert's stories follow a consistent pattern. The investigator meets a member or missionary. The inquirer overcomes resistance. The prospect encounters other obstacles. And then the person receives a testimony and embraces baptism. I happen to believe the stories. I think they are historical despite their formulaic content. Quote, the roots of this understanding of conversion are with the early church, and in particular with the prototypical conversions of Paul and Augustine. Each man experienced a dramatic moment of conversion, Paul on the road to Damascus and Augustine in the garden at Milan. Both describe conversion as a sudden but permanent change, the rebirth of a sinner, end of quote. The pattern begins not with Paul, but with Old Testament antecedents. The transformation from Saul to Paul reverberates through history to our day. Justin Martyr tells of his conversion story using, quote, a common literary convention, end of quote, of the philosopher sampling philosophical schools before discovering the true philosophy in Christ. Although Justin's conversion story isn't built on the same pattern as Paul's, quote, we should bear in mind that neither Paul nor Justin has given us an unretouched account of his experience. All these reports are retrospective, written many years after the event, and all are shaped by conventions both of the larger culture and the movement the writers have joined, as well as by the rhetorical strategies that lead each author to recall his conversion. Thus far we do not obtain from them a clear picture of the experience of Paul and Justin. We are able to discover in their use of the conversion reports moments in the process of institutionalization of conversion, end of quote. So common is the conversion pattern that sociologists often discuss, quote, the model of, the tip of a typical conversion career that is believed in by the group, end of quote, and each supplemental narrative adheres to the model and adds innovation. Even the Christian pattern of conversion isn't so original. It fits into, the lar into larger narrative patterns, quote, in the Epicurean garden, if not in other philosophical schools, we find that dimension which I will argue is essential to early Christian conversion, the change of primary reference groups, the re-socialization into an, an alternative community, end of quote. Moderns find conventional narratives problematical, but that is a modern problem, not an ancient one. An example from modern history might helpfully, might helpfully show that literary convention doesn't necessitate historic, unhistorical judgment. Quote, to be sure, there's often an element of patterning in the Bible's portrayal of people and events, but this does not disprove the essential historicity of those portrayals. In the life of Abraham, the life of Abraham Lincoln can be recounted according to the man of humble origins makes good pattern, but no one would cite this fact as evidence against the historicity of Lincoln's career. 
On the contrary, it is Lincoln's historical experience that has contributed to the fondness for such stories, end of quote. Other Lincoln-type scenes of boy born into poverty making his way to the White House are popular. Other variations on this theme include Bill Clinton and Barack Obama. In the Bill Clinton story, this theme was embodied in the inaugural campaign video, The Man from Hope. The film traced a story of boy born into poverty in a broken family. An abusive stepfather was overcome and gradual ascent began through education and ambition until the boy became president. Similarly, Barack Obama's parents met as students and he faced the difficulty of being mixed race and impeded by prejudice. With the father's abandonment, he faced the difficulty of a broken family and suffered through poverty so deep that at times he left his mother to be raised by his grandparents. Enduring drug use, street life, and a partially misspent youth, the young man eventually turned things around to attend Harvard and later orchestrated a meteoric political ascent. A variation on this motif is the rags-to-riches type scene for the Supreme Court justices. Witnessed in the nomination process for Clarence Thomas and Sonia Sotomayor. None of these characters are fictional, nor does the typical aspect of the story negate their historicity. It explains why we find such narratives compelling. I find what are often called deconversion, or conversions to modernity narratives, to be highly stereotyped. Think of biblical critics such as Bart Ehrman, or critics who have departed Mormonism, David Wright, Edwin Fermi's Jr. or Martha Nibley Beck. Their stories follow a pattern. John Levin, Levinson emphasizes that pattern is common to those who study academic biblical criticism. The applications to the doctoral program in religion he had joined as a faculty member had autobiographical narratives following a two-step pattern. The students discussed their conversion to an uncritical Christian faith and then a second conversion to modernity in the form of a commitment to historical criticism of the Bible. A colleague reassured Levinson that after two weeks, the program would have all the applicants straightened out as fully catechized uh, adherence to modernity. Those, that these conversion narratives result, result in the converts attaching to a new religion called modernity, told through highly conventional stories, doesn't mean that the stories are fictional. Caps note that historical characters, Lincoln is his example, often find their meaning in history because their lives adhere to mythic themes. We can't separate their, his, their historic from their mythic status. Quote, oftentimes myths successfully lo- locate the life within this context of a pre-existing model or paradigm. Jesus is perceived as the new Adam, the new Moses, the new Abraham, Whether or not Jesus himself considered his life to be the mirroring of these well-established patterns, his followers and his supporters believed it necessary to interpret his life in terms of these primitive mythical models. His own life, in turn, may itself become an exemplary model worthy of emulation because it demonstrated its affinity with traditional models. End of quote. The fit between historic and mythic is imperfect, so adjustments between the two must be made, usually to make the historic particular fit the exemplary pattern. Quote, There is nothing in these adjustments to imply deliberate deception or conscious distortion. It simply means that the model provides the basis for the selective evaluation of the life. Usually, therefore, the highly idiosyncratic aspects of the leader's life and personality are muted or entirely eliminated, 
Those aspects which coincide with the exemplary model are retained and even highlighted. Lewis asserts that Americans, having severed themselves from important European sources of mythology, had to reconstitute important stories about their own resources and history. They needed the myth of a dying god, such as Osiris, Adonis, and the Lincoln story filled that need. Persistent belief that John Wilkes Booth had survived and escaped after the assassination provided another folklore theme, the myth of the wandering malefactor, the wandering Jew, Pilate's servant who struck Jesus, the flying Dutchman, and the mysterious huntsman. These archetypes soon attached to the Lincoln narrative, and his assassination on Good Friday bred many familiar archetypes. Many thought, quote, that the Lord had sent Lincoln to earth as his mysterious representative to die for his people was a belief that arose from many Easter sermons and grew with time to blend into the American faith that the humble backwoodsman had been by some miracle the savior of the Union, quote, end of quote. Some thought Lincoln, a Moses who guided the people through the deserts of the Civil War, and Joshua shall be raised up who would lead the people into the promised land. Others saw his death during, the Passion, during Passion Week as an antitype of Jesus being sacrificed on the cross and both as Lincoln's Judas. Lincoln needed to die to expiate the sins of slavery, making Lincoln a martyr and savior figure. But Lincoln wasn't only a type of Christ, but also of Moses. Quote, ministers both black and white pointed out that God had permitted Moses to lead his people to the promised land, but not to enter it, end of quote. That Lincoln toured the recently conquered Richmond, the Confederate capital, the week before his death also pointed to a Christian parallel. Quote, death on Good Friday made parallels with Jesus inescapable, not to mention a Christian understanding that saw the president's recent entry into the enemy capital as parallel to Jesus' entry into Jerusalem before crucifixion, end of quote. Like Moses, Lincoln was permitted to see the end of the long journey through the Civil War, as it were from Mount Nebo, but not into the promised land of a country reunited by charity instead of malice and warfare. A more complex view of the relationship between history and literature must be grasped in order to make sense of the historical claims of all conventional stories, not the least stories about Lincoln, Alma, and Paul. Heading, Reductive Readings and Religious Explanation, Epigram. Attempts to explain religious behavior in non-religious terms are ultimately no more empirically verifiable than properly religious interpretations because they too depend on the foundational assumptions of the investigator. One can't explain ancient texts, modern texts for that matter, or the past without making pre-theoretical and theoretical assumptions, and those assumptions precede the explanatory narratives proper, which never being free, while never being free of ideological entailments. Quote, every scholarly discipline, whether biblical studies or sociology or literary criticism, of necessity works with a number of foundational assumptions that shape its theoretical work. These may be called control beliefs or root metaphors or metaphysical axioms or worldviews, but they are pervasive and inescapable. To deny that they exist or to deny that they necessarily exist is a form of positivism, a view of the academic enterprise, which I take to have been thoroughly discredited in the philosophy of science in recent decades. End of quote. 
If the researcher denies the possibility that God can be known by humans to work in history and asserts that true knowledge must be based on empirical observation, that narrative similarity is an indication of plagiarism, such claims are some of those foundational assumptions that, quote, all involve choices of a kind that are difficult to define, but which they may be called personal and existential as well as broadly cultural. I would argue that they are, in fact, ultimately religious, end of quote. In explaining the past, the researchers' presuppositions play a significant role in determining what will count as evidence and what won't. Quote, postmodern attacks on the idea of historical objectivity have proven convincing enough to show that what counts as evidence in any historical investigation depends to a significant degree on the researcher's prior assumptions, end of quote. Constricted ideas about the dichotomy between history and literature narrow the possible interpretations too much to be useful. What is true of the pursuit of the historical Jesus is just as true of the pursuit of the historical Alma. Quote, there is no story of the historical Jesus that can be isolated from faith convictions, and this is as true for the stories told by, quote, scientific and critical historians, scientific critical historians, as it is for the story told by the church. The story of Jesus is always, is always a story of the Jesus of faith, end of quote. Most critics adhere to the faith assumption that they can confidently tell the difference between historical stories and fictional ones, but this requires a huge and too frequently uncritical leap of faith. The situation is no different in Mormon studies than in biblical studies, that an older model of historical explanation, demonstrated to be inadequate, continues to dominate the sub-disciplines. Quote, in spite of the progress made in the philosophy of history in the last third of the 20th century, the concomitant innovations in the academic field of historiography, biblical studies, in the historical mode has generally continued to be on the basis of the old historicism, that is, a mode of critical study that tied meaning to historical reconstruction beyond the text, not identical with, but with close ties to the historical positivism of the 19th century, end of quote, that often proceeds uncritical of its own ideological presuppositions and asserts the past can be known as rank, rank has often thought to prescribe, quote, as it really happened, end of quote. Book of Mormon readings need to improve drastically if they are going to prove adequate. A recent study of Mormon scripture asserts, quote, if the Book of Mormon is a work of fiction, it is more, more intricate and clever than has hitherto been acknowledged, end of quote. The reader has a more, if the reader has a more complex view of the relationship between history and literature, the task of reading the text becomes even more complicated and necessary. Alan Goff, is a legal proofreader and editor who has taught in various universities, including 21 years at DeVry University in Phoenix. He publishes about literary and historical aspects of scripture in the Restoration tradition, along with historiography of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and historical theory. He received a baccalaureate degree with a double major in English and political science from Brigham Young University along with master's degrees in both those disciplines from BYU. He received his doctorate in humanities from the State University of New York at Albany. This has been a recording of Alma's Prophetic Commissioning Type Scene by Alan Goff, 
published in Interpreter, a journal of Latter-day Saint history, faith, and scholarship, read by Alan Goff.